This is HEC Media. Welcome back to Talking With Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we are able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, we are very excited to be able to come back to you after an unplanned hiatus due to the coronavirus pandemic of 2020. Since no authors were able to travel and our partners at the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books were physically closed in the early days of social distancing, we were unable to conduct many of the scheduled interviews that we had planned. But after the initial weeks of the global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors. And in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the great content you've come to expect. So let's get to it. Today, our author is a New York Times economic reporter and writer, Eduardo Porter. We spoke with him via Zoom in March of 2020 about his book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise, by publisher Penguin Random House. Being an economic reporter and having focused on the cost that people are willing to pay for things in their everyday lives in his first book, The Price of Everything, Eduardo Porter wanted his second book to focus on how the United States seemed to be unwilling to pay as much for a social safety net as compared to its peers. But the path to writing that book led him down the road to why that unwillingness exists, race. It's about um, racial hostility. It's about lines of race. It's about tribalism. It's about defining the public space as an us that's enclosed and versus a them that's outside these lines. And too many people in this country are the them. Our experience through history of building the institutions of a welfare state or, or of social insurance have been constrained by these lines. And throughout the book, he dives into how and why those lines have diminished the potential that the U.S. has. We'll hear some of these details, talk about some possible solutions, and learn a bit about the life of reporter and writer Eduardo Porter on this edition of Talking With Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Christina Chastain. So I'm very excited to talk to you about your new book, American Poison. And it was, I can't say it was an uplifting read, but I can say it was a sobering read and uh, very necessary. So let's start at the beginning and what drove you to write this book and what was your journey like? Um, there's, there are two strands to, to this answer. Um, I didn't start off, uh, 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 thinking I was going to write a book about, about race. That wasn't my original thought. I had been thinking about writing a book about how the, uh, social safety net in the United States, how it's, is so weak compared to that of other, you know, peer countries, other rich countries in the world. And I worked on that for some time, you know, and ultimately it felt a little flat to me. I, I, I was coming up with these kind of like lists of dysfunctions, you know, oh yeah, the U.S. doesn't do very well in this and that and the other and this and that and the other. And so I, I was, that was sort of losing a little steam 
Um, and then the 2016 campaign started. And the 2016 campaign put race and ethnicity right at the center of the American political map in a way that, I mean, I hadn't perceived or experienced uh, uh, recently or before. I mean, though, though we had an African-American president at the time, and I think there was a lot of uh, uh, kind of like racism underlying our political dynamics, it hadn't been just put on the table like it was in the 2016 presidential campaign when the first, you know, rally that, that Donald Trump had was about, you know, Mexicans streaming across the border and how to stop them. Um, and, and, and that sort of like alerted me to, that brought to mind a thought that I'd had, in fact, for a very, very long time. I mean, I, I was born in the United States, but I lived a very large chunk of my life outside. I left when I was six and I returned when I was 35. And when I returned to the US, I returned and I was to live in Los Angeles and, and I was kind of struck. I was a little bit gobsmacked. I love that word mm-hmm. uh, by, um, by how important race and ethnicity seem to be in this country as an organizing principle for things, as an organizing principle about where people lived and, uh, and, and what people's experience with the cops was and who people married and where people went to school. It, it seemed to have a, a, an importance that was much greater than anything that I had ever, you know, witnessed. Not to say that racial hostility, racial lines do not exist anywhere else, they exist everywhere, but just the the power, the organizing power of race seemed to me exceptional here. And I I carried that thought with me for some time, and I had already written in the past, about 10 years ago, I had written something about some ideas about how these kind of racial lines made it more difficult to build a a social safety net, a welfare state, because empathy and solidarity kind of like ran into these lines. Mm-hmm. You know, how the us versus them kind of thinking made it very difficult to build social institutions that served everybody. And so, you know, with these ideas rolling around in my head and with uh, Donald Trump making these claims on the campaign stage, I felt, well, the book that I have to write is really not about how crummy a social safety net we have, but how come we have such a crummy social safety net, which is because of all these, you know, about all these racial divisions that have, you know, time and time again across history just stood in the way. Right. So you were born here. You lived here for six years. You moved to Mexico after that? Mexico, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then you came back. Do you think that outside perspective gave you a unique perspective, kind of looking into the structures that America has implemented? For for sure. And and to be fair, I mean, Mexico is a much poorer country than the U.S. Its social safety net is extremely threadbare. So it's not like Mexico is an example for the United States to follow. I also, in my life, I lived, I lived in England, in Belgium, in Japan. Um, and there I did, ex- you know, so maybe that experience did kind of expose me to the kind of, you know, more generous 
or generous might not, not even be the right word. It seems a little loaded, but a little bit more robust, more expansive systems of social welfare, you know, where there is a broad array of institutions and programs that are designed to essentially put a floor uh, under the well-being of their people. And, and, and having seen that, and, and then I come here and I, this is, you know, probably the richest country in the history of the world. And seeing the kind of dysfunction that it allowed big chunks of its population to fall into struck me as odd, uh, struck me as, you know, uh, exceptional. Uh, and we can really see that now, right? With, with coronavirus and 27 million Americans going into this public health crisis without health insurance. Uh, yeah. Right, right. So how did we as a country, number one economically and, and number one military, how did we build a country with no, <laughs> really no public goods or basic benefits? That's, that's, I think that's crazy. And that thought was animated the writing of this book. Um, why? And I mean, the answer that I come to is that it's about um, racial hostility. It's about lines of race. It's, um, it's about tribalism. It's about defining the public space as an us that's enclosed and versus a them that's outside these lines. And too many people in this country are the them. And, uh, you know, our experience through history of building the institutions of, of a welfare state or, or of social insurance uh, um, have been constrained by these lines. And I, I think that's why we have such a soft underbelly that, belly that makes us so vulnerable to something like, like COVID, you know, where again, yeah, we have 27 million uninsured people. Those people are much less likely to go get themselves tested, even if they can get the test for free because they can't get treated if they, or if they're uninsured. Um, or they're going to be hit by a huge bill. Um, okay. So th these kind of, we have fewer uh, um, intensive care hospital beds than any other rich country as well. And because we just haven't been interested in building the kind of infrastructure um, that, that would kind of like be very useful to us now to stop what is a, a public health crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Very useful. Um, so one thing that stood out to me in your book was that it's not um, it's not just about non-white Americans. It's about white Americans and really how this racial mistrust and these biases, they hurt everyone. Economically, um, deaths of despair, it, it really doesn't go untouched with any race. Yeah. Can you kind of expound on that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I'm not arguing here that there is a uh, um, that there's kind of like this. I'm not claiming okay, there's these white racists that are hurting people of color. No, mm -hmm. what I am claiming is that there's lines of racial mistrust, and and I'd like to understand this concept broadly. I think the use of the word racism can be very narrowing. Yeah. Because this, these lines of race include contempt, include fear, include basic tribalistic kind of uh, thoughts that are present, I think, in every culture mm -hmm. in the world. 
and that these lines essentially stopped us from building a, a, an infrastructure that would help everybody. And by everybody, I mean people of color and also white people. And so, you know, the, the, the people that are, you know, that are addled by opioids without a future, uh, with stagnant jobs, they're suffering this too. They could also, you know, find a lot of use in a much more robust safety net. So I was, I was in about a year ago, or maybe more than that, I went to Harlan in Kentucky. It's uh, super white. It's Appalachia, 97 or 98% white, non-Hispanic. Um, it uses, it's one of the highest, it's one of the parts of the country that has the highest use of federal government benefits. Mm -hmm. So federal government benefits account for more than half of the income of the residents of this county on average. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the hatred for government benefits, the kind of like the mistrust of government that you could see in this place is amazing. And despite the fact that this place is very predominantly white, a lot of the, the language that is used to talk about the safety net, to express this distaste for government, uses a lot of racially coded words. It's about the other, it's about, you know, how can we help all these immigrants that are coming in when we can't even help ourselves? there are very few immigrants in Harlem, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, th there is a, a language that has kind of like been coded it in to represent the recipient of government aid as a person of color that is somehow undeserving of it. You know, I, you're probably too young to remember the welfare queen trope of the Reagan oh, years. I, I was just gonna ask you about that, right? <laughs> but um, that was a way to encode recipients of welfare as corrupt people of color. Mm -hmm. In this case, they used the, the, the real case of a, of a fraudster who happened to be a woman of color that collected a bunch of, of, uh, uh, of welfare benefits. Um, but that was used to represent every, every beneficiary. And, and, and that kind of language has been used to represent what the government does for us. Mm -hmm. And that has been extremely effective at reducing popular support, essentially killing popular support for a safety net that would really help everybody. I mean, if there's people that would really use a more robust safety net, it's the people of Harlan, Kentucky. What are your concerns going forward? In your book, you state in 2040 or mid-century, we should see this huge demographic shift, right? And that could be a good thing. Um, but do you have fear leading up to that point? Some retaliation, if you will? Yeah. Well, I have fear of, the, I mean, that point doesn't really kind of comfort me super. Okay. Because, you know, so let's think about it. We reach the, the 2040s and people of color are in aggregate in the majority. And what society do we build then? Mm -hmm. First, I don't think that majority demographically is immediately going to translate into political power. You already have all these institutions that are sort of girding to prevent that from happening. So like the idea that we're going to have a, a, a Supreme Court that's packed by conservative justices for the next 50 years is mm -hmm. going to be an institutional force that's going to, I think, prevent this political change. I think things like gerrymandering of congressional districts in order to pack 
minorities into a small number of congressional districts is another tool that's being used in order to reduce the political cloud of people of color into the future. I, and, uh, um, I also think that you know, the strategies to suppress the vote of people of color, which have, have been rampant in the past uh, election cycles, are also kind of like tools to kind of like slow the political empowerment of people of color. So that's one thing that I think it, that it's going to, uh, um, this process is going to be slower than what the demography suggests. And then the, th the second thought that I also have is, say even if, you know, people of color acquire political power, I don't think that that, that necessarily means we get to a better place. Because if it's just, you know, if it's the same kind of us versus them thinking, but the us that holds power is just a different us, it's, it's, it's no better a place. Yeah. So how do we shift that us versus them? Uh, what we do? <laughs> yeah, you know, when you write a book, your publisher tells you, you know, you want to put something optimistic at the end, something I'm that looking for it. <laughs> home and feel good about. And I, you know, I tried. Yeah. Uh, Talk about the Mount Laurel court decision. Uh, you know, so 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 then I, then I think about the good side of this demographic shift, the fact that we are. As we become more of a minority country, we're becoming presumably more accustomed to being with each other, to living with each other, to sharing spaces and institutions and schools and cities and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all good, you know, because um, I mean, there is some social theory called contact theory that says that that, that finds that people that are in closer contact can see each, each other as humans in a way that if they're not in contact, they can't. So, you know, if you're sharing the laundromat with somebody of a different race and, you know, going to the barber and going to the restaurant, you know, it just becomes another person just like you. You might even say hi rather than an abstraction. Oh yeah, a Hispanic or, you know, an African-American that, you know, you don't really interact with. So I, I, do, I do think that that's true to some extent and that especially in America's cities that are becoming more diverse kind of fast, that might be an important uh, uh, dynamic pushing to a more, because I think ultimately, I mean, and this is going to sound super corny, but I, I do think that ultimately what one needs is to build a new idea of an American. You okay. know, we need to buy, we need to believe in an American that's everybody. Mm -hmm. You know, the melting and, pot, what we're known as, right? Yeah, exactly. We're supposed okay, that's what we're supposed to be, but we're not, you know? Right. And it's not like not thinking about race or not thinking about ethnicity. I think, you know, it's part of who we are and people's identities and cultures and whatnot are important to them. Mm -hmm. But it's just being comfortable with that. It's just being. Um, and so to some extent, I think that living together, going to school together, marrying each other, having lunch together should sort of move us in that direction. Mm -hmm. But um, there's a bunch of caveats to that thought. I mean, one is that if, I, I think so. I think urban America is a place where that's most likely to happen because rural America is still predominantly white. Um, it's also economically more stagnant. So mm -hmm. there's likely to be more conflicts over resources. Mm -hmm. And so it's less likely to, to kind of create these kinds of bonds that I think are important. So, but what's happening in urban America? Urban America is really mixed. 
but it's it's also balkanizing really fast. It's not like, you know, I live in Brooklyn, I live in a neighborhood that 15 years ago probably was in probably entirely African American. Mm-hmm. Now, over the last 15 years, 10 years, there's been this process of gentrification. Right. And so you have younger, um, um, quite Asian families, not so much Latinos, moving in. And right now it's very mixed. And it's really kind of an interesting uh, mix. I, I, I love it. But, if you, but I, my suspicion is that 10 years from now, this is going to be entirely white. Because, you know, more affluent folks who tend to be white come from Manhattan. They push the, the rents up. The people who were living here before can't afford those rents and they have to move further east. They move to East Brooklyn. And so this idea of the mixed urban environment, I don't think is really, really what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you look across American cities over since the 1970s, there has been a, a decline in segregation. Segregation was really, really high in the 70s where all, you know, white America was all living in the suburbs. Uh, inner cities were predominantly people of color. Um, and it's not that like that anymore. But I do not think that we are really moving towards a kind of an integrated equilibrium. I think that there's a lot of forces still pushing us apart in where we live, pushing us apart in where we go to school. And I think that also increasing income inequality also reinforces these trends. Absolutely. Because it also reinforces social separation by income, which correlates pretty well with, with race and ethnicity. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Eduardo Porter and talk about electoral politics and tribalism, as well as how the newest generation's take on the state of race relations and economic results strikes them. One thing that I worry about is that on matters of race, the progressivism of the young is moving us to an argument about justice. We live in an unjust society that has done harm to African-Americans, and now white society owes African-Americans some form of restitution and I think that that argument is perfectly sound, but I don't think that that prescription moves us to the world that we want, that I think is necessary for us to get to. The discussion on racial hostility and the promise of America continues with Eduardo Porter on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. In your research, you also mentioned, um, talk, still talking about the, the election coming up and the 2016 election. Um, some of the people that you talked to voted for Obama. Yeah. Two years in a row. And then they yeah. turned around and they voted for Donald Trump. Yeah. How, That's just really explain that. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, I mean, I think that there's a good, there's a, the good thought to take out of that is that some of these, some of these um, um, preferences mm -hmm. are not in, are not written in stone. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not like you have folks that are, 
um, um, that are always going to be mistrustful of people of other race and can never trust them and never vote for them or never share with them. Evidently, there is some, you know, some flexibility here. Um, and, 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 but at the other hand, I can also see this as, as something really kind of less optimistic in that it, does this signal the kind of like the death of hope in a kind of a more racially inclusive uh, 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 political um, um, uh, organization. I mean, if I, I suspect, okay, to some extent, let, let me let, let me take a step back. These thoughts are not, do not exist in a vacuum. You know, our, th our thoughts about race, about who we are, about who we like and who we dislike, mm -hmm. exist embedded in an economy and in a society. Mm -hmm. And so one thought about the movement from Obama to, to Trump is I think, has to do with, um, with economic circumstances. So people in a more dire straits economically are likely to be more um, selfish, might, it's not in the perfect word, but, but less willing to be generous across the many barriers that, that, that might separate them from other people. And so thoughts that come up in 2016 about, oh, yes, it's Mexicans that we've got to stop, and that's a big problem in the United States, or Muslims are the big problem. So it might be kind of like there, but less salient in 2008. And then you have this, you know, and, 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 and so you're, you, you're, you're going to be voting on a different set of ideas. But I do, I do find it amazing that I do find the Obama to Trump voters super interesting but and I, I and I do think that it's not like one day they weren't they didn't have thoughts about race and the next day they did have thoughts about race I sort of think that they had thoughts about race they're complex yeah and they get and they get you know turned off or turned on depending on what's going on in the context and, and let me take just this opportunity to just, I, I don't know if I've said this before, so if I'm repeating myself, I apologize, but I don't, that's why I, I really don't love using the word racism to express what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Because if I use the word racism, it seems that I'm accusing a set of bad people of having kind of bad immoral thoughts about others. And I think that is part of the mix. Racial bigotry is part of the mix, and to be sure, but it's not the only component of the mix. I think tribalism is is bigger, more prevalent. I think it's 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 extensive around the world. People of good heart have these thoughts of who us are, where us ends, and how generous I have to be to us versus how generous I have to be to them. I th and that is, I think, the thought that, that is what I'm talking about that animates this book. It's the barrier, and the barrier could be, again, about mistrust, it can be about fear, it can be about indifference, it can be a, just about a lack of, of empathy, more, you know, amorphously stated. But I, it's, I, I'm not, I don't 
think that the people of Macomb County, Michigan, mm-hmm. were, you know, uh, um, racist in the sense that they wished to have ill will towards Mexicans in 2016s or towards African-Americans before. It's this sense of these are other people upon which, I, you know, upon, for which I can justify being, uh, um, so like I can justify being mean in a way. So like I, I can justify having thoughts about them that I wouldn't have about somebody that's in my own Right. It's like another team. It's like a rival. Exactly. It's a lot exactly. more complex than just being yeah. scared of the other. There's just... Yeah. Right. So, if the, so if there's a black guy at the supermarket in front of me and he has a stake in his shopping cart, that mm-hmm. will allow me to say, oh, how come that guy, he's probably on food stamps buying steak when I have my hard job and I can't afford chicken. You know, and these are things that came up in some of the Macomb focus groups. And um, the, the, the difference... The, the, the racial line allows that thought to happen. Yeah, that brings up another good point that you address in your book is that, and I'm sorry if I don't word this correctly, um, I don't have it exactly written down, but um, each of our cultures, they, they think that basically we're taking the other, the, the other is taking more from a welfare yeah. state social handouts than yeah. what is actually the case. Can you kind of yeah. talk about, I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that is really yeah. kind of cool because everybody thinks that. Yeah. Everybody thinks that I'm putting more into the pot and the other guys are taking more out of the pot. It, you ask whites, you ask Latinos, you ask blacks. It's everybody thinks that. So what's, what's the truth? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, that, I think that here's the thing. The truth shouldn't really matter. I don't think that that's what should be driving our policy. Okay. I think that when you build that, I think that to build a, a a system of benefits that helped us all, that can't be the thought. It, the thought has, it has to be about building the public good. And yeah, if you make more money, you're probably gonna contribute more to the public good than somebody who makes less money. So to the extent that people of color are, less, are, are, are poorer than white people, probably white people put more into the pot um, yeah. because we have a progressive taxation system. Um, and, uh, and, but I, I don't really think that ultimately that's the, that, that's the argument that should decide this. Mm-hmm. I think the argument that should decide this, I mean, and this is my personal preference, is what, how do we best protect this, our society? How do we protect this nation? How do we protect it from the opioid epidemic and from the suicide crisis and from, you know, the high infant mortality rate and the mm-hmm. high maternal mortality rate? And that is to my mind, what should be driving our thoughts and our choices. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sure, I mean, I think it's an important part. Well, how do we finance this? And we need smart people to think about that. And there's different ways. So Europeans, for instance, they finance this taxing much more the poor than we do because mm-hmm. they use um, um, consumption taxes. Mm-hmm. And consumption taxes hit the poor more than they hit the rich because the poor consume a larger share of their income than the rich do. The rich save more money. Okay. And so purport, but so, you know, and that's one way of doing it. Maybe I would recommend a different way of doing it here in the United States. That's more progressive taxation, but so it's something to think about, but I don't think that the argument of, oh, are you putting in more than I am putting in should be the one that drives the discussion. Unfortunately, it is the one that drives the discussion. 
And in that discussion, it's really, you know, the people who hold the political power are actually, on average, quite Americans. And so it's their thought about who takes more and who puts more in that's really driving the conversation. Right. That shouldn't matter. It's just the end goal that should really matter, right? Exactly. Yeah. Do you have hope for the future generations? From my point of view, I feel like the younger generations are a little bit more progressive. You can kind of see that with, with Bernie Sanders and, yeah. uh, and the, but, but and you nobody came to, out to vote, you know? <laughs> I know, I know, <laughs> I know. But what do you see as our future, whether you be white, non-white, um, as far as the younger generation's social empathy? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the thought that yeah. the younger generation is going to do this. I, I love it. I, 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 there's some polling data that puts a that puts a little doubt on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this. Uh, I can't remember the outfit that did some polls on you know uh, who's deserving, who's undeserving. You know, should we uh, uh, um, should we have a, a should we spend more to help people in poverty and that kind of thing? And the y- younger um, younger um, the, the votes of younger whites were not that different from the votes of older whites. The, the perceptions of the decision, not votes, I'm sorry. The answers to this poll. Right. Um, now, that's just a few polls. That's <laughs> not the world. Um, and I think that, again, this idea that we're becoming a more mixed uh, 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 reality that you know young minorities don't even see themselves as minorities in many cases they're born in LA they're, they speak English just you know with the same accent as everybody every other English speaker they live in you know many of them live in kind of integrated neighborhoods and they see themselves as American they don't see themselves as hyphenated uh, necessarily so I could see how you build a, a, a more integrated country like that um, but, uh, and, and, and if you look at kind of like the reaction, what I see, what I, what I think what we saw in 2016, the, the reaction against this change was mostly from older people. So if you look at kind of like the, the Trump demographic, it was much older mm-hmm. um, and also overwhelmingly white. Um, and so, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe the new generation will bring us some of that. I think it's not super clear in the data. I mean, it's, it's, and, and, um, and I'm also, I wonder about the discourse. So if you look, you mentioned Bernie and, and, and so the progressivism of the young. One thing that I worry about is that on matters of race, the progressivism of the young is moving us to an argument about justice. Okay. And, and, so that the, we live in an, in an unjust society that has done harm to African-Americans from the 1600s to the present. And now white society owes African-Americans some form of restitution. The case for the, Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and you can call it reparations or something else, but there's an argument that comes out of you injustice us as a people now you owe us for that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that argument is perfectly sound, you know, and it's true, the injustice is true, but I don't think that that prescription moves us to the world that we want, that I think is necessary for us to get to. Do you think so it would I, 
creating a deeper divide. Exactly. So I think, yeah, let's just posit that to the 60 million voters that voted for Donald Trump in 2016 and let's see what they think. Hmm. And I don't think you're going to get a really cool answer from those guys. There's not going to be, oh yeah, sure. Yeah. You know? Not a and, cool. and because I think the answer has to come through a some consensus or some kind of like a, a, an accepted view of all, mm-hmm. I, I don't think you can leave 60 million people out of that thought and, yeah. and get a system that works. Sure. And they probably, and you did mention this in your book, they probably already think that, you know, Barack Obama was president. He exactly. re- presidency. We don't owe you anything because you have your African-American president. Exactly. Exactly. Right. exactly. In fact, they start feeling, they feel somewhat uh, persecuted. They, you know, you hear all these thoughts about whites feeling, oh, it's so tough to be white this, these days. Yeah. I mean, we're the persecuted ones. And I mean, there, there's a very, <laughs> it's an interesting lack in, in, in awareness, but it's very, it's a very strong thought in, in, mm-hmm. in, in, in some communities. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So is it, I guess I'm just going back to this. Is, is there, Hope? Is there hope for your son and your daughter? And no. it, it pains me when I read that he didn't want to speak Spanish anymore. I mean, how did that make you feel as a father? I mean, my thought was, of course you're going to speak Spanish. Yeah. yeah. You are, you're going to, yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, but I could understand the caution. Yeah. yeah. You know? Um, I, I mean, we're living in New York City, which is probably one of the safest places in this country to speak in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but still here, um, he was afraid and that, that scares me. So, yeah, no, I do, I do think, I mean, we have, the U.S. has done, has moved. There's been moments in our history that are really remarkable in, <laughs> t- towards the goal of, a, of, a inclusive country. You know, we did have civil rights. Um, we did have uh, the war on poverty. We did have Brown versus Board of Education and a series of Supreme Court decisions that integrated schools. We had the Fair Housing Act. There are really moments where I think we've, I mean, in some moments we've literally stepped back from the brink because in the 1960s, kind of like the urban racial unrest was intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and urban segregation was also very, very strong. So we have achieved these, these moments of, of enlightenment, it seems to me. And so that suggests that it's not impossible, right? That, uh, that, that, that we can do this. Eduardo Porter, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. All right, thanks. That's New York Times reporter and author Eduardo Porter talking about his second book, American Poison, How Racial Hostility Destroyed Our Promise, by publisher Penguin Random House, when we spoke with him in March of 2020. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The producer, host, and video editor of the video version of this program was Christina Chastain. Audio editing by Ben Smith. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. 
The Talking with Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain, and I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.